Welcome to Episode 74 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Catherine Lotrianti, uh, who's the Associate Director for the Institute for Law, Science, and Global Security at Georgetown University and a longtime expert on uh, uh, cybersecurity issues. Uh, so Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, uh, also uh, Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal uh, computer crime prosecutions, among other things, now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Uh, Michael Vadis is the last of our uh, regulars to join us. Uh, uh, he's formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department and is now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, welcome, Michael. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the National Security Agency and DHS, and the record holder for uh, returning to step to practice law uh, more times than any other lawyer. All right, well, why don't we get started? Uh, uh, China, I can't tell you how many security laws China has passed. Uh, uh, there's at least three or four. Uh, uh, all of them kind of bad news for the tech sector, as far as I can see. Uh, uh, it looks as though China has uh, uh, a case of CFIUS envy, and they are uh, uh, passing investment restrictions for security. They've passed a security law expanding the number of core um, security interests that, the, that China has. Uh, they have a counterterrorism law. Uh, they have laws that um, uh, on technology that suggest that uh, technology should be approved for use in China only if it is subject to control, uh, meaning backdoors. Uh, um, the enthusiasm for regulating the tech sector uh, really knows no bounds, as far as I can see. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, have you straightened, got these straight? Because uh, I sure don't. I don't think anybody does, really. And, you know, my kids are studying Mandarin, but, but uh, way beyond my ken. Uh, I think it's still too early to say what they really mean because the language is typically vague, as so many Chinese laws are. But I think there is a valid concern that um, these laws could give way to government requirements that people provide a backdoor, uh, turn over their encryption keys for technology that's used in, in critical infrastructure or, or other key uh, sectors of the uh, information sphere. So we'll have to wait and see how these play out, but, but they are certainly providing the basis for, for a more heavy hand from the Chinese authorities. Yeah, there was a there was a recent and good article about uh, uh, how Facebook and Google and to some extent Twitter sort of uh, uh, stubbed their toes in the uh, uh, Chinese market because they were bringing U.S. Uh, values to bear on the Chinese business, and that uh, more recent entrants like uh, Evernote and Uber and LinkedIn have. Uh, uh, sort of laid down preemptively for Chinese censors and um, uh, uh, Chinese concerns about uh, uh, the strength of the security that uh, uh, people are introducing to the market. It kind of makes you appreciate, uh, though, uh, the U.S., where we can't get cybersecurity legislation passed at all. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's hopeless. Uh, uh, and, uh, yes, uh, it is pretty remarkable that uh, uh, the Chinese have, seem to have no difficulty passing uh, these new laws, uh, although they may have some difficulty figuring out what they mean. Um, well, I, I, this, is, this has got your name written all over it, Jason. It is an FTC case that involves misuse of cell phone technology to mine bitcoins. Uh, uh, so uh, there wasn't any doubt who was going to talk about this one. Uh, uh, what does it mean? Well, although it actually wasn't bitcoins. It was actually other types other of virtual currency. It was dogecoins right, and things like still, that. But uh, still, take your point. Um, but the case isn't so much about digital currency as it is about how tech-savvy criminals are always trying to find new ways to prey on users, whether it's phishing or spam or scareware or ransomware. This is just another iteration of an attempt to deceive mobile phone users through through malware. In this case, a company and its CEO are the developers of an app called Prized. And they marketed it, and it was downloaded by thousands of people as part of a rewards program. Basically, you... You play games or download apps affiliated with their app, and you redeem. Uh, you get points that you can redeem for prizes like clothes and gift cards. And they represented when they marketed the app that it was free of malware, and you could get it on Amazon or the Google uh, App Store. 
Uh, and in fact, the app essentially was a piece of malware. Uh, what it did was it installed malware on, on the user's phones and, and it turned them into mobile uh, 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 virtual currency mining platforms for the benefit of the app developer. So it was additional computing power in a mining pool where the, the mined Dogecoins, Litecoins, and Quarkcoins went to the developers of the apps. Um, so they reached a settlement with the FTC and the New Jersey AG, and under the terms of the settlement, I hope you're sitting down for this, they are banned from creating and distributing malware. No kidding. Um, wow. Yeah, like, those, <laughs> the FTC really knows how to come down on somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a, a bank robber having the charges dropped in exchange for promising not to rob any more banks. Uh, <laughs> now, they did, in fairness, uh, get a $50,000 monetary penalty that's payable to the state of New Jersey, but almost all of that, about 45000 of that, could be suspended if they comply with the rest of the agreement. So. Although I, I give well, you them- know, I, I, let me let me stick up for these guys just briefly. Uh, I, you, you called it malware, but the fact is, I remember uh, years ago when SETI Online, which was looking for extraterrestrial intelligence and was trying to go through a whole bunch of signals uh, received from outside the uh, uh, solar system, uh, s- said. Does anybody volunteer to use their extra cycles uh, of their machine to download our uh, software, and it will run through a bunch of signals looking for signs of uh, intelligent life? And we all did that because uh, uh, we had the spare cycles. And now you could say, well, your phone doesn't have as many spare cycles because you're using the battery. But really, if they had gotten people's consent, there, this wouldn't even be malware. Oh, it, right. If they if they got people's consent, it wouldn't be a big deal. The impact of the, on the users was really just that it drained their battery and it, and it tore through their data plans, uh, and so it cost them money in that way. But if you volunteered for that, then you know then they would have no beef. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that uh, that that said, I would have been pretty upset if I discovered somebody was running all that on right. my phone. Uh, uh, notwithstanding that, probably when I joined SETI, I had less computing power <laughs> in my computer than than, than you have my your phone, phone now. Has, yeah. Right. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, well, um, there's I, I, I want to ask you about this one too. There's a class action in the Anthem case that's been filed, uh, um, and that sort of ties into OPM because the uh, FBI has released a report saying they think uh, the same tool was used, uh, the same remote access tool was used in the OPM hack as in the Anthem hack which is one of the pieces of evidence that this is China-related. And and that raises the question, uh, is this um, uh, class action really going to go anywhere? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, The only thing surprising about the filing of the class action against Anthem is that it took so long to file it. I'm surprised, Um, too, yeah. uh, Because they were looking for a victim. Right. They had to look for for a person who at least had a a potentially colorable claim that her – her uh, identity theft issues were potentially tieable to, to the hack. Um, and the allegation is, as it almost always is in these cases, is that, is that uh, the provider was negligent because, in this case, they failed to encrypt data despite being warned by the FBI that healthcare data was being sought by hackers. And despite the fact that Anthem's predecessor, WellPoint, had been attacked in 2009 and paid a huge penalty to the HHS, uh, and the complaint refers to this as the holy grail of a hack. Uh, that's a quote, although I think the people like yeah, us who's SF86... That's right. That's right. That's right. what you always say in, right. in uh, uh, complaints like right. this. Although since our SF86s are now currently being translated into Mandarin, you know, we might beg to differ <laughs> that this is the holy grail of a hack. But, um, but because uh, Social Security numbers and dates of birth were stolen as opposed to credit cards, they're arguing that it's it's much more of a, of a threat to, to people's identities. And the lead plaintiff says that even before she was notified by Anthem of the breach... She was notified by the IRS that someone had tried to file a fraudulent tax return on her behalf and get a refund check. Of course, in she has name. no idea that there's any connection between the Anthem hack and the IRS That's hack. right. They certainly allege there a connection, but they have no uh, – I, I don't think there's any evidence of one which, at this point. Which, which brings me to kind of the point that bothered me when I first read this. How do you sustain a class action – if you've got that much doubt about exactly how people were compromised and in what way, I mean, uh, is this a class action of people who were in the Anthem database and had IRS fraud uh, tried on them? Well, you know, I think they're going to have two sets of problems. One is uh, is standing, as is always the case, you know, right. being able to establish that you suffered some actual injury or certainly impending injury and not just some theoretical one. And even if there are you know, there's a class member who had a tax refund check stolen and a class member who had a bank account opened in their name and a potential class member had a car purchased in their name. 
um, they're all different injuries, and, and yeah. so it begs the question whether that is something that, that is uh, properly treated as a class in the first place. But, you know, look on the merits, especially if it turns out, as you alluded to at the beginning, that the Chinese were behind both hacks. Right. Um, uh, you know, it's it's awfully difficult on the merits to say that Anthem was negligent when they were hacked by a, by a, a nation state, state actor. Well, that's right. right. That's the other problem. But, uh, well, Michael, uh, uh, this there's also a class action now against OPM. Uh, um, uh, any thoughts about its plausibility or the plausibility of the Anthem class action? You know, I think that's an even tougher one, um, given that they're suing the federal government. Uh, and, and there, again, as Jason just said, you've got a state actor, so... Uh, it's hard for me to see how that gets very far at all. And again, there too, you know, I don't even know that there's plausible claim of harm, uh, since we're not aware of any, uh, identity theft that's been tied to the OPM hack. At least I haven't read anything about that. No, but if it, you know, if we keep telling people that uh, the reason we know it's a nation state is that nobody has used it for uh, credit card fraud, uh, there's an obvious solution for the Chinese, uh, which is just to uh, provide some of this stuff to somebody who does credit card th- fraud. Yeah, if they want to cause double pain to the U.S. government, it makes the suit more plausible, I guess. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. Uh, well, the FTC has finally released, not finally, they, they had something out uh, in 2007, but they've released new security guidance uh, uh, for uh, uh, companies. And it's kind of interesting. It's sort of a restatement of security law as though the 50-odd security settlements were uh, the common law of uh, uh, security, and now they're doing a, a, a restatement giving the black letter l- rules that you could have derived if you were really carefully reading all of the um, uh, settlements that they reached. Uh, Jason, did you take a look at this? I, I did, and I, you know, I'd like to give the FTC credit where credit's due, but it's hard to give them complete credit because it's the, the issuance of this uh, this product, which is admirable and is, you know, motivated by a desire to be proactive in helping businesses uh, minimize security risk in the first place, is based on this notion that these 54 cases are are common law and and that these are lessons we should have been deriving from the 54 settlements all along. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, the but you know to give the, to give at least some credit, it's 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 admirable as I said that they're undertaking this initiative, which they call Start with Security. And they've taken the 54 data security cases and culled 10 uh, key lessons, most of which are fairly obvious to right. a- anybody who follows this space. And, and I think even companies that have been trying to glean lessons from the FTC um, would say, really, that that's it? Um, you know, be secure with data, have secure passwords and authentication, store sensitive personal information securely, uh, you know, secure remote access to your network, uh, segment your network. Make sure your your vendors, service providers have reasonable security measures, all of which are obviously great right. steps to take, um, but are not groundbreaking. Um, the target audience seems to be small and medium-sized companies, which are, by definition, probably as a group, less likely to have made significant investments in cybersecurity. And they've also paired this up with a, a one-stop website with guidance for businesses. Um, and so the, the, the goal is, is certainly laudable. I don't know that the businesses that really dig into this are going to um, – uh, learn a lot that they didn't already know. But well, it, and, and, and the, the, they almost expressly refuse to uh, to make hard question, uh, hard decisions. So that there's the, there's a bunch of things where they say you should do this, and then a bunch of others where they say you should consider this. Well, what does that mean? You know, uh, they don't even have the guts to say. Uh, if you can afford it, you should do this. Uh, or if it's justified by the sensitivity of the data and your ability to uh, to pay for it, um, they just say you should consider it. Well, okay, I'll consider it. Well, and, and, and that's right. And some of it is question begging anyway. Anytime you tell someone that in order to have reasonable security measures, they should make sure they have reasonable security measures, <laughs> it, it does yeah. raise the question of what that means. So yeah, as you know, we uh, step toe uh, on behalf of Phil Riding or sued the FBI. FTC saying, uh, we'd like to see the internal documents you have that you use for uh, uh, deciding what uh, is uh, appropriate security. Uh, um, and they sent Phil a letter saying, you know, 
we don't have any documents uh, that you can see. Uh, everything is protected from FOIA. Um, uh, recently, we actually went to uh, uh, court, or at least we uh, uh, filed a uh, status report that led to uh, a little bit of progress, uh, and the FTC has now said, ah, we do have some voluntary production that we'd like to do. So we're hoping to see something. Uh, uh, my guess is they're going to say, oh, look, we now have a security guide. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and um, uh, speaking of uh, interesting issues that, or releases from the government, the, the uh, Foreign uh, Intelligence Surveillance Court uh, released a uh, – a decision, sort of the last hurrah of the old 215 metadata program, um, the USA Freedom Act had said, we've got all these new rules and they're going to take effect 180 days after we pass this legislation, which actually allowed for 180 days more of operation of the old system, or at least that was the plausible inference. Uh, um, but there was litigation over it, amicus briefs filed, uh, and Judge Mosman uh, uh, released a 30-page uh, opinion, uh, which is sort of the revenge of the FISA court. They can at last say what they think of the Second Circuit, uh, and it isn't very complimentary. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he basically says uh, uh, the Second Circuit is relying on a mischaracterization of how the program works. Those are his words. Uh, uh, actually, I don't know if Judge Mosman's... A, he or a she, but I was, I'm going to assume he. Um, and uh, um, it kind of lambastes the uh, Second Circuit as unpersuasive and not particularly well-informed uh, um, and takes apart, you know, word-by-word word portions of the opinion. This is uh, uh, not that brave because the Second Circuit isn't going to get to, to fire back because by a time 180 days has gone by, the case will be moot. Uh, and it isn't likely to get out of Judge Pauly's court until uh, after that. So we may never hear what the uh, uh, Second Circuit's repost is. Uh, um, and then uh, uh, other NSA uh, news, um, WikiLeaks continues to dribble out uh, stuff that it says without any uh, uh, provenance at all uh, must have come from NSA, showing that NSA uh, not only spied on French authorities, but also on German and Brazilian authorities. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, the, the uh, Intercept covers this and gets predictably outraged uh, quotes from people, but you you get the sense that the the outrage is sort of uh, uh, for show rather than uh, actually uh, deeply felt. Uh, uh, one of the quotes from Braz of Brazilian is, "Well, notwithstanding that we're doing everything we can to improve our uh, um, uh, relationship with the United States, uh, this is still not acceptable." And somebody else says, uh, "Yes, my outrage has gone to maximum." You know, and you kind of imagine him turning it up to eleven just uh, uh, because you know he has to. Uh, so I, I, I'm guessing that this story um, uh, sinks like a stone. Um, last. Thing I wanted to bring up uh, was Russia. Uh, we gave them grief over their uh, um, uh, right to be forgotten, uh, and uh, they modified the bill. I'm sure that was, you know, that, that we have numerous subs uh, subscribers in Russia, uh, and uh, uh, they now say you don't have to look for all the stories. You actually just take down the links that people give you. That's the, their principal contribution uh, to. Uh, carving back the right to be forgotten. They still insist that uh, public figures have a right to be forgotten. Uh, J Japan has uh, um, joined the right to be forgotten uh, uh, ranks with a court decision that I thought was pretty surprising. Basically, somebody who had engaged, if I remember right, in uh, molesting uh, children, but was really, really sorry. Uh, and so they said, okay, uh, said the court, then uh, we'll take down the link that uh, um, uh, led to, that, that described your conviction, uh, even though it's only three years old, if I remember. It was kind of, uh, it shows you, uh, it is true in Japan that if you're really, really sorry, um, uh, the criminal system forgives you easily and fast, uh, uh, but the, to, to 
to strike down the links that allow other people in other countries to uh, to know what uh, what you did is sort of surprising. Plus, it means I picked the wrong country to be a criminal defense lawyer. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, but you know, I, I'm not sure how elaborately sophisticated really really sorry is right. uh, uh, it may not may not require uh, a lot of thousand dollar an hour uh, advice to, to say that uh, and the BBC God bless them has begun publishing every single story that uh, uh, or a link to every story that Google has told them has been delinked so if you want to know what's being taken down uh, uh, a really good sample uh, is provided at the BBC uh, uh, site that uh, collects every story and would, intends to collect all future stories that they understand have been delinked by, by Google. So uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, um, development. And uh, um, finally, they're, finding, they're, they're making good use of all that money they extract from the poor people who own TVs in the uh, United Kingdom. So um, if that's okay, enough on the news roundup, uh, I'd like to turn to uh, to Catherine. And uh, um, first, Catherine, if you could give us a little bit of your background. My memory is that you were at the Justice Department doing uh, 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 national security and intelligence matters, that you've been at the CIA doing uh, uh, national security and intelligence matters. You did oversight for the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board uh, uh, all before you went to uh, to Georgetown. Is that right? Sounds about right. I think you've got it. I um, started off in uh, the honors program at DOJ. Not not necessarily national security. It was uh, I was doing bankruptcy work up in New York for the trustees office with the department. But then um, I soon transitioned to CIA's general counsel's office. Um, did a short stint on the Hill um, investigating 9/11. Um, but then after that went on to um, the president's intelligence oversight board at the White House under Scowcroft for about four years. And then decided I needed a change of pace, needed to finish my um, Ph.D., get the dissertation finally done, and so I went to Georgetown. And I've, I've stayed there. One of the things at Georgetown related to kind of the cyber work is when I moved to Georgetown, I worked on the cyber issues while at CIA and in the government. But then when at Georgetown, I wanted to do more of the cyber work and make it more interdisciplinary um, as well as the teaching and the curriculum, but also the outreach um, and that is what I've been doing mainly at Georgetown since, uh, I guess it's uh, 2000 and 2008, starting up the cyber project and doing conferences focused on the international, mainly the international aspect of uh, cyber and the norms, um, and, and that's been going on for a number of years now. So that sums it up. And now I am, I am fully uh, teaching and working on cyber issues in an academic setting. Well, I want to come back to that, but I, I can't help observing that uh, it's time for somebody to do a where are they now uh, look at the alumni of the uh, uh, 9-11 Commission because there's some really – some of the – um, the people who were not big names at the time, uh, who are, who just staffed it, have, have, uh, established real careers of their own, many of them in national security and intelligence. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, some of the people, so I have to, I'll, I'll kind of, um, be a little more precise. So the 9-11 Commission, so do you remember, if you remember the first thing that was stood up, um, less publicly, um, discussed was the joint inquiry staff. So I was actually part of that first group, um, and oh, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you, while I, I take no credit for the report that they put out that wasn't published, of course, like the 9-11 commissions under Norton, but you can still get, it's highly redacted. I give them, I only, I was only on part of that group for three months. It was actually probably the worst job I ever experienced in my life, and I, I blame George Tenet for um, saying it would be a good experience that I would step out of CIA to kind of see the community writ large. Um, and, and I, for some obvious reasons about political um, motivation by some that were um, trying to direct that investigation, I quit after three months of full, you know, remember Britt Snyder was, he was the one who hired me onto that, and he, of course, has um, fabulous integrity and a man of um, um, great values, and he only lasted about a month as the executive director, and soon after he left, um, I left, but they did. A, they ultimately did, I think, a, a very good job. But um, on their final report, mainly, irrespective of how I thought the political um, people were trying to direct it and compromise the investigation. And then I think the 9/11, a number of the staff 
also went on to the 9-11 Commission. And, of course, we know of their report. While, you know, there is much been discussed about it, I think they did a great job in laying out the history, at least chapters 1 through 11. The recommendations, I have my own opinion uh, no, you about. Feel like you, you get the feeling that the, the, the commissioners got in a room over pizza one weekend and, and cranked those out. Yes, uh, I, I, I actually do. And, or they were already written before the investigation started. Um, but, yeah, there were a number of young I would say some. Uh, there were a number of lawyers, a number of us were on it, um, and we weren't in the legal capacity, so there was the general counsels of each of those investigative bodies. But, you know, I was a lawyer by training, but uh, not um, the general counsel. Uh, but a number of young people, lawyers and non-lawyers, who actually went on, you know, they typically be, were already in the Intelligence or National Security Committee uh, or uh, establishment um, because they needed security clearances to start up quickly. Uh, but some of them went on to kind of continue that work in various capacities. Um, um, some are still in the government. Others have gone to private sector. But, yeah, it is an interesting – it would be interesting to look at maybe both those bodies and see where, where people have gone. I'll tell you the three months was about as long as I could take um, on, on the issue, but it was definitely a learning experience um, for me. Yeah, I, I, I remember I, I, there was a, a minority report, if I remember, that was really, really well written and yes. uh, pretty harshly critical of the FBI's yep. uh, yes. approach yes. to the world that I thought you know, got it exactly right and, and in the end was very influential on both the 9-11 Commission and the uh, – uh, the WMD Commission, which uh, said, yep. you know, they, they, they really need to continue the, down a path of reform that was pretty uncomfortable for the Bureau. No, I think so. And like all of those reports and investigations, unfortunately, some of the recommendations that I, uh, some people have thought of were the best um, have not been implemented, including, you know, reorganizing Congress, right? Reform yourself. But uh, unfortunately, we do the best we can, and we hope that the establishment we have today um, may prevent such another attack. Um, not sure if many people are convinced of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I was just talking to the, the Homeland Security Committee uh, on the House uh, about uh, authorizing legislation, and the first question, and really probably the only question about uh, authorizing legislation, is will all the other committees who claim jurisdiction over Homeland Security let you even produce legislation? Uh, so um, it, it is it, it is ugly. But we didn't uh, invite you on to talk about that. Uh, um, it, you've done a lot of work in international uh, uh, issues relating to cyber, uh, and uh, uh, you certainly have more tolerance for it than I do, but really so does everyone. Everybody. Um, what do you think is actually being accomplished, uh, especially serving U.S. interests in the uh, international sphere? So I, I think, you know, and recently, um, something that has just recently occurred and so um, useful to think about the kind of the most current um, events or agreements or lack of agreement on certain things, uh, um, about a week ago, they um, completed probably the fifth, fourth or fifth round of meetings up at the U.N., um, the UN um, government um, group of government experts, the UNGGE, and this is now a body of 20 states looking at the ICTs and the, the development in, you know, kind of creating the stability in, in the global arena. And we've got I, 20 ICT being uh, uh, what information uh, something technology communications technology. Yes. Okay. Otherwise, you know, think of cyberspace, right? So in the yep. cyber domain, this group has been in existence. The Secretary General established these meetings back in two. I think 2004, believe it or not, they've been going on. But really one of the critical years of the meetings of this group in the U.S., of course, represented Michelle Markoff and Chris Payne to represent the U.S. at those negotiations. We're up to 20 nation states, but 2013 marked a critical point because it was the first time, you know, any report that that group comes out with has to be unanimous. Then they hand it over to the General Assembly. And in 2013, that report was um, – they did come up with a report out of their meetings that year. It was accepted by the General Assembly, and it was the first time that the group agreed with Russia and China as significant cyber powers along with the U.S. in that group. That was only 15 nation states at the time. But for the first time, they actually agreed that international law applies in cyberspace. So, you know, Stuart, there's been the debate for years back and forth. What rules apply? Are there any rules that apply? Should international law, the, the UN Charter, and other treaties like Geneva and Hague apply in cyber? So 2013 kind of 
resolve the question, at least these 20 states, including China, Russia, the U.S., uh, well, 15 states at the time, agreed to it. Since 2013, though, we have had China seeming to walk back from that, right, walk back from what they agreed. Um, LOAC, Law of Armed Conflict, was not in the document. Um, seems to be disagreement as to whether it, um, the Chinese ever agreed to it, but now they, they certainly walked away. So we fast forward to this year. About a week ago, they finished their rounds of meetings at the U.N. What we got, good news first, is that there have been three, now there's 20 nation states, still Russia, still China, and the U.S., and there are significant players. But, you know, there's Spain and Estonia and France and Germany. Believe it or not, there's Ghana, not sure why, and Malaysia and Kenya. Um, but there's, in Colombia, there's about there's 20 now, um, with the significant ones where most of the debate, controversy, disagreement comes up between China and Russia and the U.S., of course, China, Russia on one side, U.S. trying to push its agenda on the other. Good news is three norms were agreed to. And now the document, the report, they're hopeful that there will be a report coming out um, in a couple months. It will, it's already going to the um, Secretary General. In that report, I've been um, told there are three norms that were agreed to by the 20 states. Um, these are peacetime norms. So they kind of put aside the law of armed conflict discussion. So that's a disappointment. But the three peacetime norms, and it's interesting to think about how these would be applied, that these nations, of 20 at least, would not intentionally damage anyone's critical infrastructure. So norm one, good one, kind of an obvious one. Second was that they would not target any nation state cyber emergency responders. That's interesting concept. And then third, that all of these states would assist other nations in investigating cyber attacks and cyber crime launched from their territory, right? Now, that's interesting because we know from Estonia-Russia um, engagement and incidents that then the Russian, back, back then, in 2010 or 2007, um, I, I get the Georgia one and the Estonia one mixed up, but Russia refused to assist in the investigation when Estonia asked them through an MLAP process. Now, so here we do have a peacetime norm that they're going to assist nation states in investigating from uh, attacks emanating from their territory. Now, the devil's always in the details. Yeah, I, I think in Georgia they said, not only will we assist, we will send our investigators in tanks right across your border to help you. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it is interesting that what's going to happen, though, clearly, it's, it's good news that they've got these, you know, the, people kind of think of this as soft law. You know, it's not a treaty. Nobody is supportive of a treaty, really, except, you know, the Russians, Chinese, particularly the Russians are still pushing their code of conduct uh, with the Shanghai organization. But the U.S.'s position is state firm, no formal treaty, likely. Let's get these norms agreed to, at least in the UNGG, which seems to be the forum that everyone is looking to, to see out of these states, 15 and now 20, um, membership changes. Um, what are we going to get? Russia has asked at the last meeting the other week that, that we have another 2016 UNGG, so it looks like the mm -hmm. process will continue. Um, but so the good news is we've got some norms that are very practical. Uh, I've also been told that in that report that will be hopefully coming out soon, in the last meeting they also agreed on pretty extensive um, detailed discussion in the report about confidence-building measures. It seems like on transparency issues, sharing information and strategies, it's the lowest hanging fruit. These states are pretty willing to agree. Here's the bad news. Here's what was not agreed to. Before you get to that, let me just ask, is this bound for some kind of General Assembly resolution? Yes. Or is it it, it, there, it's in process of being translated right now. So what we do know is the 20 agreed to these, and right. that, that report's being translated, and then they'll have a General Assembly vote on it. Now, presume, presumably... It'll be accepted like the last one was back in 2013. Um, um, I think some members have some doubts whether there'll be a General Assembly agreement on it, but if it goes through, then you'll have a General Assembly resolution on it, right? If it doesn't, what most likely will happen is that individual nation states, um, some in the GG, some outside, will step up and just accept these peacetime norms anyway. So we kind of have to wait to see. But it, the... The hardest part yeah, was there's actually no, there's getting nothing, There's nothing really binding about a General Assembly resolution. but the, No, the, not binding in the sense of law. Right. It's not like a Security Council, but an indication potentially of growing customary law, right, that, that General Assembly resolutions traditionally are kind of a sign of here we have, you know, every nation state voting in support of this, that that is an indication of, drawing, of, of developing custom on the issue. So it's a sense of that this is going in a good direction, and this is the U.S. direction. This is what the U.S. wanted. 
It didn't get, the U.S. did not get all it wanted, though, in this last okay, round. Okay, so tell, tell us the bad news. So the bad news is they wanted, going into this round from 2013, the whole goal was to take this general agreement from 2013 that international law applies and drill down on it. So get some consensus on, okay, Article 51 of the U.N. Charter, self-defense applies in cyberspace. Well, Russia balked at it. And it wasn't just Russia alone. Um, Russia balked at it. China balked at it. Even Belarus at the last meeting and Malaysia and Pakistan said, no way. We do not want to specifically say Article 51 allowing, you know, uses of force and armed uses of force in response in a self-defensive framework. We're not going to say that. And so they they kind of ganged up against the U.S. and that – Article 51, as I've been um, told, is not going to make it into this report. Boy, I, you know, I, I, I'm with them. I, I, I'm not sure it's in our interest to, to insist on that. First, you know, what you're doing is you're refighting the last 30 years of U.S. interventions in uh, places from Bosnia to Iraq. And, and, and when, when we say, you know, there ought to be a right to self-defense, uh, uh, they all hear, oh, God, they'll be, they'll be coming across our borders, too. Um, and so it's a very hard sell. And we don't need it, right? We, we, we have our own view of this. Uh, and unless everybody's going to lie down for that, we're better off not raising the issue, aren't we? Well, here's the here's um, um, kind of my sense on what you said. Do we need it? Right. That's it's a good point. Um, here's where you get. If you can argue you're conducting a use of force in self-defense under Article 51, you've got strong international and legal legitimacy, right? And, and look at 9/11. We can look at any of, the, and it doesn't have to be as large as 9/11. But if you can say that we're invoking our right under U.N. Chart, Article 51, you're going to have great international support. When we go out unilaterally under something less than Article 51, that's where the U.S. and any nation state, honestly, but the U.S. typically, finds they're in a very difficult position to argue self-defense unless you've reached the threshold of Article 51 that you suffered an armed attack. But your point is well taken. What they're worried about, those that opposed any specific reference to Article 51 is concerned that the U.S. will use that as justification to respond in a forceful way to things like, you know, in your imagination, like OPM. Now, in theory, the OPM hack, though, no matter how troublesome it is, under international law would not rise to the level of triggering Article 51 anyway. You don't have an armed attack in that context. You don't have destruction, and you don't have loss of life. But um, that's what they're worried about. They don't want to militarize, they say, cyberspace. You know, that's been Russia's stance. Oh, give me a break. You, China's not doesn't want to militarize cyberspace. No, because they like it the way it is. <laughs> their, their defense is laughable. Now, what's interesting, back to the cyber IP theft point, right? It's tied, it's, it came up in an interesting way with respect to the UNGG process. Because last year, the United States, an interagency governmental body, fully um, accepted four norms for cyberspace. The three that are already uh, were mentioned that were at the UNGG and accepted, um, but a fourth one, the U.S. government, said that we will not use the cyber domain to basically use our intelligence assets to steal, um, you know, corporate secrets of foreign companies and give it to our U.S. companies for economic advantage. We've been saying that for a while. Now we've said it. We've officially accepted it as this is going to be our policy. That was not accepted at the U.N., to no surprise, right? Right. So they've got three. The U.S. wanted these norms accepted. They got three out of four. I'm willing to bet they lost the U.K. on that one. Yeah, I mean, they may very well have. It would be interesting to see if there was, you know, votes taken around there as to who was even vaguely interested. I mean, having dealt with the the French and in some of their um, cyber dialogues, it seemed that they were on board with this concept. But I'm not so sure when they were up at the UNGG in that forum, did the French even support um, the the IP theft norm. But, you know, I think that's going to be left to the trade issues and not yeah. the UNGG process. It's, it's not going to be seen as a security, at least it's 
many people won't try to define it as security and fit for the UN, but rather fit for the trade negotiations, trade sanctions being part of the ramifications, or the WTO, as, as we've talked about previously. That, that's a bad place for that, too. That, that, it's crazy yeah. to try to introduce I think this. so. You're better off, rely, you know, uh, the sanctions on espionage have always been domestic law sanctions, and they've been aggressive. You know, we, we uh, executed the Rosenbergs. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, the sanctions can be pretty harsh, and you can certainly invoke plenty of U.S. law um, uh, uh, on the beneficiaries of, as well as the perpetrators of cyber espionage, and do it just locally. Uh, you might even be able to get um, international sanctions on certain kinds of uh, uh, espionage, especially with the French on board. Uh, uh, I could imagine a kind of fairly large number of countries saying screwing with the banking system is something that we will sanction you for uh, just because uh, uh, we think that risk is too great uh, and uh, um, uh, whatever advantage we could get from that is not as big as the disadvantage of having a banking system failure. Uh, so I, I, we're, we're much better off looking for like-minded countries and trying to build a a coalition of the willing rather than uh, international law on this topic, aren't we? I, I, and I agree with you, I, uh, particularly on the espionage issue. I don't think that's the right way to go, thinking about some kind of either group of 20 or international treaty on espionage when it comes to the IP theft. I think it's better off left to either bilateral agreements, a group of, like you said, the willing, um, the able, and using your domestic legal and law enforcement tools. And, and, and that's what DOJ is doing now. I mean, outside of cyber, just a few months ago, you still see DOJ indicting, it happens to be Chinese individuals that are in the United States or traveling to the United States for IP theft, right? Not, not in cyber, these cases, but they're not going to just use cyber, right? And, of course, you have the Chinese saying, well, the United States is picking on Chinese nationals. This is terrible. Well, okay, that, that will probably be their, um, their response. But we can get um, custody over these individuals who maybe not the five PLA members from last year, but others, like the academic, it was a professor who got arrested. Um, he came in for a conference and in California, and he was arrested. Um, the sanctions also can freeze the money can freeze the money of individuals, can stop the products from coming in. So I think if you're very, it's, it's very complex and detailed, but if you take the time, they can have, like you said, a, a tremendous detrimental effect on the offenders. Yeah, I, and I also I think, um, and I said this in, uh, when, uh, in the last session when I was talking to Rob Kanaki, I think this administration has sort of engaged in self-blinding behavior by thinking that norms is the is the is the principal way to think about uh, uh, cybersecurity and that leads them to say well there's no norm against uh, uh, espionage of the, the OPM sort. So I guess we should just say, oh, yeah, more power to you. That is not the right response. Uh, we should be outraged and punitive. Uh, uh, and just because we can't get other uh, uh, countries to share the outrage at espionage aimed at us doesn't mean we're not entitled to be outraged or to engage in punitive behavior. Uh, uh, but because the administration keeps framing these things as norms. They're, uh, uh, they're really undercutting what uh, ought to be an, a much more aggressive response to some of this espionage. Yeah, and as a lawyer, I have to admit, and in teaching this, it is it has always bothered me. The concept of soft law, I think, does no justice to the law itself, meaning that if you jump to the idea that, okay, we're not going to get any broad treaty agreement on it, therefore we must move to some voluntary commitment on a, with soft law or norm. I, I think it's too tempting and easy then to forget about all the real laws that we do have as very legitimate, strong tools to be used. And, you know, I think a lot of people when DOJ indicted the 5PLA, a lot of people had some um, quite a few critics of that, meaning, you know, and saying that well, we're never going to get custody of them. And I'm saying, why, why be overly critical of the fact that the, that the U.S. is using legitimate laws to prosecute people who broke our law? You know, okay, it would be nice if you actually got custody of them, but it doesn't mean you then don't use those laws that just because enforcing them is going to be difficult. You know, you want to make sure you use the laws that you have. And I think jumping to the norms, it allows particularly non-lawyers 
to forget about the laws that actually we do have. And- I, I can't help I can't help thinking every time I hear these words from uh, uh, Chris Painter's mouth or anybody else's uh, of cheers. You know, Chris Painter walks into the bar and everybody shouts, Norm! Um, it, 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 and, and so I, I, I like that because it's about the right uh, level of response to the uh, enthusiasm for norms. Um, so you said there was bad news. What's the bad news coming out of uh, UNGG? So the bad news in my view, and here where you may get disagreement even among Americans, and what I would have liked to see is they did in 2013, they had, I thought, made progress saying they got China and Russia and others in the room there that they agreed on international law applies. I would have liked then, at the, and this was the intention, I believe, was now to get more specificity on what exactly does that mean. You know, some people, and I know the U.S., there are some in the U.S. that don't, um, other departments, DOD or others, that would like to leave it vague. But, you know, as an international lawyer and someone that sees the value in getting understanding of thresholds or definitions like what is a use of force, what is an armed attack, when you go into decision-making, it is useful to know that what we believe is and think and operate under an idea of what a use of force is, that the Russians are on the same page with us. Right. No matter. Yeah, whether, I'm, I'm not. I'm not with you on this one. I, I know there I, are I many people who are not. You're basically asking our enemies to tell us how we should fight wars with them, uh, and uh, they'll they'll be glad to give us advice, but it won't be advice we should be taking. Uh, I want to ask you about one last thing before we finish up, uh, and that is uh, this whole discussion about how much authority individual victims of attacks and espionage should have to go outside their networks to track down the people who are attacking them, maybe to get back their stuff. Uh, uh, it goes under the name Hackback, which I'm not wild about, but uh, maybe stuck with. Uh, um, a, I know you've, you've, you've gotten a little less hostile to that idea, but I wonder, um, in particular, many people say, a big problem here is what's the international climate going to be if um, uh, companies start responding outside their network to attacks. And I wonder if you've thought about the international consequences of uh, uh, allowing people to leave their networks in pursuit of the folks who are victimizing them. Yeah, so here's where, um, and, and I'm glad you tied to the international because, in fact, it's been my concern of the ramifications internationally for such action that have that's held me back from kind of talking more extensively of what may be possible right under domestic law so there's two concerns you worry about you of course any advising clients you'd worry that you you want to make sure that they understand the limitations under the computer fraud and abuse act right that's your domestic um legal concerns but what has driven my kind of hesitation and kind of, if you will, opening it up domestically under our legal system is what the possibilities for a reaction um, internationally. You know, and, and it could be quite, depending on what um, what the U.S. Um, company or individual did in what country, um, it could have pretty negative effects, not just for, forget the company, but for the U.S., for the U.S. policymakers, right? So, and, and I had, I've always envisioned in my kind of scenarios of worst-case scenario or my dreams that a company does this, and for some reason I've picked Russia as kind of the place um, that a server is taken down um, in, a, in a hack back, if you will, scenario, and that it's they're not maybe the, the Russians will then use it as the, the phone call that's made is not to that company, but the Russians then call the U.S., and it would be the U.S. government people, call the NSC and say, you guys have now conducted an act of war. Right? They're going to attribute, and which is in, under international law, um, you can attribute, if you meet the right threshold, individual non-state actors' actions to a state. And hold the state. Yeah, although it's pretty pretty ironic of the Russians to say that, since their response to both the Estonian and the Georgian uh, uh, attacks that they uh, uh, inspired was to say, "Oh, that's just patriotic hackers. Uh, we don't actually have any uh, control over them." Yeah, well, I would. I, I'm tell, it would be them that I think, and, and they wouldn't be the only ones that would actually get um, um, overly dramatic about such an incident from a private company. And then I, mm-hmm. I think it just becomes a nightmare scenario for the U.S. government. Right? Maybe the private company benefits from whatever the goal of their attack was. Maybe they actually achieve it, but at what cost, right? What are the costs to the government? 
So the international ramifications, more so than the criminal domestic um, uh, ramifications, have what is what con- has concerned me. And it gets more complex beyond the domestic legal framework when you start thinking of what countries may have a motive to kind of take this one incident and make a big opportunity out of it and um, complicate other other things that are going on with the relationship with the U.S. at the time. Well, you know, I I, got to say that the Chinese in their attack on GitHub used American computers, computers in the United States, to attack an American institution, GitHub, because it was engaged in uh, uh, releasing um, the stories in another American institution, the New York Times. And uh, our response has been non-existent. Uh, uh, so uh, um, the it would be, you know, probably uh, at a minimum inappropriate and uh, asymmetric for the Chinese to say, if any U.S. institution does that to us, uh, we get to object because uh, uh, they've certainly already used U.S. computers to attack the United States uh, without getting any pushback. Yeah, but you, you know, Stuart, like, Think of espionage. <laughs> Although everyone has done it, remember all, there were many, many stories where a country stands up and is outraged by it. When right. you know, it depends on the, um, it could just be an incident. What, it could be a flap that happens, and all of a sudden they're going to object and be eclectic about it. But you're sitting there going, well, wait a minute. They've conducted wow. the same uh, if, operation. If, if, if we're going to set U.S. policy to avoid uh, um, harsh speeches in the U.N. General Assembly aimed at the United States, I think we're going to have to change a lot of other policies as well. But, uh, okay, so I, uh, we're, 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 I promised I'd get you out of here after half an hour. Uh, this has been really interesting uh, and a great uh, uh, discussion of the uh, uh, United Nations and international uh, uh, developments. And there are developments uh, uh, probably to my chagrin, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you uh, more as those uh, uh, processes go forward. So thanks very much for joining us. And if you've got any, any papers coming out, any speeches you're giving you want to plug, this is the time to do it. I'm all set. Uh, well, then uh, uh, thanks to Michael, to Jason, and to Catherine uh, Lotriante uh, for a great uh, uh, podcast. Uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, you can send uh, uh, your comments to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com or contact us at 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 74 of the Stepto Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Michael Casey and Paul Vigna of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and coming soon, we're going to have the power couple of cybersecurity, uh, Annie Anton and P- Peter Swire. Uh, I I disagree with Peter and agree with Annie more often than uh, not, Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether we can uh, uh, get them to disagree uh, in public. Uh, They're both from the Georgia Institute of Technology and well-known in cybersecurity. Uh, We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.